episode of 2022. This is Michael at Fellowship Fayetteville. I'm here with Clark. Hey guys, Clark here with you. Michael, good to see you here at the beginning of the new year. Yeah, I'm excited about a new series that we're launching. We're going to be spending four weeks in the book of Jonah. Yeah, man, I'm super excited about this short story. It's only a couple of pages in most of our Bibles, but big lessons here. Right on all kinds of deep theological things, and maybe one of the more familiar stories people um, are aware of in the Old Testament. Yeah, I think what we're going to find is it's a story that people are familiar with that they may not know as well as they think they do. That's been my experience as we've studied it, is a book that I felt like I was really familiar with, but the more I dove into it. You know, Gary used to always say, uh, the Bible is shallow enough for a child to wade in it and deep enough for a scholar to drown. Wow. And what I found in the book of Jonah is um, the story is not exactly as clear-cut and straightforward okay. as I thought it was. I thought you were, that was a pun that you were intending. Yeah. Water. Right. Ocean. A, yeah. a scholar could fall into the mouth of a whale. Oh, yeah. No doubt. Hey, well, let's um, before we jump into our first teaching in chapter one, we're going to do four different che- teachings based on the chapter breakdown, but... Um, let's get some background on the, the book, frame it up, the author, um, kind of the time frame it was written in. Uh, what do we know about Jonah a little bit here and about when this was written and some of the historical places yeah. that he talks about? Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, we don't know for sure who wrote the book, and the writer never tips his hand. And so um, I think most scholars today don't think Jonah himself actually yeah. wrote it, uh, but he probably told somebody about his experience. He probably related um, chapter two is all Jonah speaking. And so um, we we have to consider the book anonymous as far as the author. We know when Jonah lived because he's mentioned in 2 Kings. And so we know um, that he was a prophet uh, during the the divided kingdom. So in the 8th century BC. Jeroboam II. Yep, King Jeroboam II. That's right. uh, Israel, which was the northern ten tribes, broke from Judah, which was the southern two tribes. Mm-hmm. And Israel never had a good king. Um, all yeah. their kings were bad. And Jonah was a prophet under, like you said, Jeroboam II, one of those bad yeah. kings. It was actually a time when Israel was really prosperous. Um, they extended their borders back almost to where it was in Solomon's time. Uh, they were materially prosperous. Their economy was doing well. Uh, but morally... They were just a mess, and they were worshiping idols, and false worship was all over the nation. Um, Jeroboam II did evil in the sight of the Lord, the writer of of 2 Kings says. And so it's an interesting time for Mm -hmm. Jonah to be the prophet. And we think that the events of the book were written down not too long after they actually happened because the book of Jonah is referred to as one of the 12. Today, we would call them the minor prophets. That's right. Uh, pretty early on. And so it's not a later edition. It was probably written pretty close to the mm-hmm. time that it actually happened. Yeah, and it, you know, I thought it would be interesting to note just uh, a few of the things that were going on around at the time. I mean, we're going to learn about this city, Nineveh. Yeah. Historical cities. Part of, it's one of the major leading cities of the Assyrian Empire at the time. Um, some scholars think that in the bigger f- framework of the city on the edges and in the city, around 600,000 people could have lived there at the time. Pretty amazing. Really dark place. Um, they also were a, they were an enemy of Israel, and so there was some fear involved. And so we're going to learn more about Jonah's heart 
for Nineveh as well as God's heart for Nineveh as we make our way through the through the narrative. Um, any other background things that would be helpful for our listeners to know as we begin to work through our book? Um, I know one thing I was going to ask you, Michael. There's some thought about is this is it historical narrative? Is it allegory? Is it a parable? Right. Trying to teach us a moral lesson. What are your thoughts on some of that? Yeah, so you know, when we think about how the Bible approaches storytelling in general, um, we know the Bible does have parables. Jesus told parables, but when Jesus tells a parable, it's clear that it's a story that's meant to convey a purpose. It's not relating historical events. And so when Jesus tells a parable, the characters in the parable usually aren't even named. That's why we give them names like the prodigal son, the older brother, the father, because he doesn't give them right. a name because they're, they're creations um, of his own imagination, if you will. Jesus never tells a parable where he says, here's a parable about John the Baptist, and he just makes up a story yeah. because John the Baptist was an actual historical figure. So I think we could apply that same thinking to Jonah. We know from 2 Kings and external sources, that Jonah was an actual person. That's right. And so it seems really unlikely to me that a biblical author would create a story intended to convey a a lesson that wasn't a real story. And so, yes, the book of Jonah absolutely is designed to teach a lesson. It's a literary masterpiece. I mean, in those 48 verses of just masterful Hebrew, mm-hmm. there is so much loaded in there, so much irony, so much comedy, so much symbolism. And Jesus pointed to the symbolism. He said um, to what he called an unbelieving generation, the only sign that will be given is the sign of Jonah. Well, he was referring, of course, to Jonah being in the fish for three days, That's just right. as Jesus would be in the tomb for three days. But I think if we look at Luke eleven twenty nine and 30, Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up and judge this generation because they repented, and this generation will not. And to me, that Harsh sounds like... rebuke in Jesus' day. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And it sounds like he's referring to a historical event. That's right. And so the fact that Jesus points back to the events in Jonah himself um, as things that actually happened, that's pretty convincing and compelling for me. Yeah. You know, um, we're going to get into this more and more in our study together, but um, most of us get captivated by the fish story, right? the whale story, um, the supernatural things that seem to have taken place for that to even happen. Um, but what would you say would be the overarching statement or maybe two or three themes that kind of hover over the whole narrative Yeah, um, that, that, that put our focus where it should be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we think of Jonah, we of course think of the fish. I mean, it's amazing that it happened. It's a really... Um, exciting story to tell kids, so it's memorable. But the writer actually downplays the fish. He he only mentions the fish twice, when he swallows Jonah and when he spits him out. Uh, he gives the fish the same amount of attention that he gives the other things that God supernaturally uses in the story, which are a plant, a worm, and the wind. The author treats all four of those things. He uses the same verbs even. Oh. And so he doesn't seem to play up the, the presence of the whale. He's just one of the things that God supernaturally uses to affect his will in the story. Yeah. And so I would say, man, for me, the overarching uh, theme of the book is, there's two for me, really. One is, is God's sovereignty, that God is powerful and in control. And we're going to see that even, we're about to talk about chapter one. In chapter one, he's sovereign over the weather. The sailors cast lots. 
He's sovereign over the lots. He makes them come up the way he wants. He's sovereign over the fish that swallows Jonah. And so God is sovereign. He's in control. And then I think that's coupled with this theme of God's compassion, that God has compassion um, for everybody, not just for Israel, not just for his chosen people, which we're going to see that's what Jonah wants. Jonah wants compassion for Israel. He doesn't want compassion for Nineveh, the Assyrians, enemies Israel, uh, Israel's enemy. He doesn't seem to care about the sailors on the mm-hmm. ship that's about to go down in this supernatural storm yeah. that Jonah's brought upon them. Uh, but God does. God does care about the sailors. God does care about the people of Nineveh. And so God's sovereignty and God's compassion. And I know, Clark, a big theme of the book that you've been talking about as we've discussed it um, is just God's heart for the nations. Yeah, I mean, they, Israel was appointed to be a light, if you will, unto the nations. Um, I know Isaiah speaks of that. And so um, it's just interesting, Jonah's indifference. Um, it's almost, it, it's, it almost feels more like it's intentional rebellion and passivity towards God's desire to see other nations outside of Israel come to repentance. And so, um, which is fascinating because Jonah is a prophet of a nation that's walking in rebellion to God. Exactly. Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam the second. And so, um, there's just some ironic things that go on in this. Well, hey, Michael, let's jump into chapter one. Yeah. We, uh, this will be our uh, first sermon of the year. And what are some things that um, intrigued you or maybe some things that we're not going to hear yeah. in the teaching that, that really uh, moved you and that God stirred in your heart to remind us of? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the book, just right out of the gate, it starts with God saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. And so Jonah arises and goes 180 degrees the opposite direction. He goes, he basically... It's a true U-turn. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. right. You know, when I was a kid, if something was far away, my parents would say it was in Timbuktu. Yeah. And that's what... <laughs> Jonah buys a ticket to what uh, 8th century BC Israel would have thought of as Timbuktu, Tarshish. It's as far the other way as Israel knows about. As far as an Israelite in his day knows, there's nothing past Tarshish. And so he's trying to go as far from God as he can. Um, And it seems to me that, you know, a lot of times we say, well, Jonah was afraid of the Assyrians, and maybe he was, but I really think it's more that, and we're going to see this really when we get to chapter 4, that Jonah knows that if Nineveh repents, God will forgive them. And that's the last thing he wants. Yeah. He doesn't want he wants a, judgment. He wants judgment on Israel's enemies. And interestingly, the prophet Nahum, which if you're doing the daily readings with us, you're going to read in Nahum this week. Um, he's already prophesied before the time of Jonah about the downfall of Assyria. And so it's a done deal as far as God's concerned, as far as the prophets. And really, Jonah would know that. He should know that God has yeah. already decreed judgment against Assyria as a nation. And so this mission God sent him on, sending him on is really to warn the specific inhabitants who are living in Nineveh at this time, and Jonah does not want to do that. I think he does not want these dirty Gentiles to experience mercy from God. Yeah. So I, I don't it's think it's gonna... fear. I think it's nationalism, um, Israeli, northern kingdom nationalism. Um, and so, yeah, he goes the other way, and when this storm comes, what we see is these pagan sailors who show more compassion for Jonah than he's showing for this whole city. 
that he wants God to wipe out. They do everything they can to avoid throwing him in the ocean to make this storm stop. And when they finally do throw Jonah overboard um, and the storm stops, they stop and worship God. Hmm. And so I think the irony here is Jonah doesn't want to take, like you said, the light of God to a Gentile nation, and he inadvertently takes it to these Gentile pagan sailors. Mm. Even in his rebellion, God reveals himself to these pagan sailors. And so it really is an interesting story, but it does end um, with Jonah being swallowed by the whale. And um, we're going to talk a little bit when we get together in the sermon about um, God appointed the whale. God already had a rescue plan in place. Even in Jonah's rebellion, there's been no repentance. Jonah's still running from God, but God refuses in his sovereignty and compassion to let Jonah go. Sounds like it points to maybe a bigger narrative. Yeah, you think? In both the Old and New Testament. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. God's grace. So speaking of the New Testament, you said what's not going to make it into the sermon. One thing that I wanted to talk about in the sermon, but I just don't have time, is Mark chapter 4. Yeah. And amazing the, parallels. The parallels yeah. are unmistakable. Some commentators think that Mark was referencing Jonah as he described the events of that storm. So mm-hmm. the disciples to jog our memory in Mark 4, they're on a boat and this storm that was probably a supernatural storm, but this time not from God but from the enemy comes and uh man these guys who have spent their whole adult life on the sea, they're fishermen, they're professional sailors. Uh, they're scared for their lives. Mm. And Jesus, like Jonah, is asleep in the boat. Mm. In Jonah, the captain wakes up Jonah and says, um, what do you mean, you sleeper? Uh, in Mark, the disciples wake up Jesus and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? Uh, and, of course, we know Jesus goes up and calms the storm. And I think Mark's point is Jonah was swept up in the storm and had to be saved by God who sent the whale, mm-hmm. appointed the whale. That's right. Um, Jesus calmed the storm because that storm wasn't the battle that Jesus was on earth to fight. Jesus was going to step into another storm when he went to the cross, the, the storm of God's wrath, and he yeah. was going to come out victorious on the other side, victorious over sin and death. Yeah. And so I think... Jesus himself compared himself directly to Jonah. We already mentioned that, but, man, there are a lot of parallels there that um, Jonah is pointing us ahead to the ultimate light to the world yeah. in Jesus. And I think it's going to be incre- as, as awesome as some of the historical background is for us and some of these parallels bringing this into some of our modern-day application for us as a church. And um, what... Things about Jonah, uh, do we identify with? We may not want to, right? But is there a hardness of our own heart towards those of other nations and in our own nationalism, if you will? Have we neglected active compassion for those who worship pagan idols and don't honor God as the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom He has sent? Yeah. So there's going to be some instructive things for us for sure. Yeah. It'll be um, much more than just a historical lesson and clearing up some um, different ideas on this thing we call the well, right. the big fish. Right. And so it's going to be really good. I know um, 
Next week, we'll get into um, some of Jonah's understanding of the Psalms and the Scriptures. We'll find someone who seems to know what to say, but maybe his heart's not in it. Right. And uh, we'll start to figure out what is repentance, what is it not. And so looking forward to uh, to our time together in this. Anything else before we go, Michael? And I just think what you just said is exactly right. I think the writer of Jonah wants to hold up a mirror to 750 B.C. Israel and say, do you see yourself in this, that you, you have all this prosperity that's a gift from God, and yet you don't want to go to those who need the Lord? Um, and I think he's holding that same mirror up to us today. It's the amazing power of the Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture that when we look into that mirror, as you've just alluded to, we see some of our own faults and shortcomings. And I think we have the opportunity to respond to this God who's still today sovereign and compassionate. How do we live in a way that reflects that? Yeah, that's a great way to end our time on Sermon Notes. Uh, thank you again for being with us. And uh, signing off for Michael, this is Clark, and uh, we'll see you next week.